As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. If you are afraid that your spouse might be hiding assets, or that the business that you've worked hard to build with your partner is not gonna reap the full value in a divorce, you're not gonna to wanna to miss our podcast today. Today I'm talking with Robert Bales. He is the owner of Bales & Company, which he uh, has owned since 1991 and was formed to help advise people and businesses uh, regarding tax planning, financial issues, and fraud investigations. While divorce is not his only area of expertise, it, it is one where the divorce professionals in our area frequently call upon him uh, for his input. Robert, I'd like to welcome you to our podcast today. Thank you. Um, I want to talk with you about um, some of the problems that you see in a divorce. And so the first question I'm going to ask is, you know, it's often said that financial issues are a leading cause of divorce. Do you see financial issues as being a common factor in the divorce process? I actually don't see it as much as you think it is. I see mental illness as the primary cause <laughs> of divorce. Uh, but you do see it some where, uh, spouses are careless with the money out, uh, blowing all the nest eggs, so to speak, or investing in super risky ventures, or in a lot of cases, investing in paramours, girlfriends, <laughs> but, uh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't be sexist. It goes both ways, but generally it's the guys. <laughs> That's true. And I'm sure, I mean, you're getting to dig into uh, household financial records and business financial records. And I'm sure you've seen a little bit of everything over your years of practice. Yes. <laughs> Typically, what kind of clients are you working for in a divorce scenario? Most of the clients we work for are high income or high net worth folks. Uh, who have significant financial issues where it's worth investing the money in someone like me uh, to dig into it. Um, many of them own closely held businesses. It's one of the reasons they're successful. Uh, so it's common uh, for us to have closely held business owners as part of our uh, divorce practice. So as we begin this conversation, I want to have you define a couple of things because I, we throw these terms around a lot, but they're not necessarily everyday lingo um, for somebody who's not involved in financial decisions of the marriage, perhaps. So when we say high net worth, what typically are you talking about there? I'd say a million dollars and up. And most is that of the cases we work on? Total assets or household income? No, that would be net worth, assets, okay. less liabilities. So. You know, if you have a $2 million house and a $500,000 note on it, you've got a million and a half dollars going toward your net worth. Exactly. And then uh, when we talk about a closely held business, uh, what, what is that referring to? Generally, uh, it's entrepreneurs that we see uh, where one, two, three, maybe as many as five or six people own a business together that they started and operate. Uh, a lot of the ones we work on are just owned by one person who started it and uh, it's their baby, uh, which is very common. 
I was just going to say it's um, it, it can be hard to be married to an entrepreneur. <laughs> there are a lot of challenges that can come along with that, including a lot of risks and rewards. And it's especially filled with heartache when that business interest finally starts to pay off. And now you find out you're getting a divorce. Yes. And that's very common because entrepreneurs are married to their businesses and to their spouses. Sometimes the business wins out. <laughs> That's right. Especially the successful ones. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk. Um, we have a closely held business. Um, when is it appropriate to have that business valued in the divorce process? You know you're going to have to have it valued if you're going to divide the assets. It's very, very uh, unusual for spouses to remain owners of a business post-divorce. And even more unusual is it for that to be a good idea. <laughs> uh, it typically does not work, although we have had arrangements where it did. Uh, but you've got to value the business so you know what other assets to give the spouse that's not operating the business to even things out. So you got to put a number on the, and it's, you're valuing the equity in the business, not how much are its assets, how much is its income. It's what's the equity in the business worth, which is what you would pay to take it over with all the debts and everything else that it has. So when we, we sort of build up, we build out a spreadsheet typically in divorce and, you know, we'll list the house, we'll list the bank accounts, the retirement accounts. And when you have a closely held business, the business gets listed um, as an as asset on the spreadsheet. And Correct. so we're turning to an expert like you to help us come up with a value for that business. Uh, what is typically involved in valuing a business? Normally it's understanding the assets that it owns, you know, does, how much cash does it have? Does it have a lot of equipment? Does it own real estate? That kind of stuff. How much debt does it owe? Because most businesses do have some debt. And then normally, most importantly, is how much income does it make? And that's where we spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what income would it provide to a third party that walked in to operate it? And usually some multiple of that income is what turns out to be the value. So when you're looking at the business, I think it's important for people to understand it's the value that it would sell to a third party. So it's not necessarily the value with the with either you or your spouse being the owner of it. It's you're actually selling the entity. It's, yes, it's what a third party would pay and in Texas there's a little wrinkle that tends to really lower the values. You have to value it as if the party to the divorce is not in it and free to compete with it. And in a lot of cases that really reduces the value to a low amount. <clears throat> Personally, I don't think it's fair, but it's what the law is. <laughs> So that is that reduction of value. That's the, what we call personal goodwill, correct? Correct. And that, and so personal goodwill is actually treated as separate property as belonging to that spouse because it can't be separated from them. Correct. Right. So their personality, their connections, their, you know, their charisma, all of that, um, that personal goodwill is something that they get to keep and is not even valued as part of the division. That's right. We have to break it out 
when we value the business. And a lot of times it's relationships with customers, relationships with vendors. Uh, is their name included in the name of the business? You know, it, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But for example, one of the more frequent ones we see is professional people. You take a doctor, a lawyer, a CPA like me, take us out of the practice. And if we're the only, let's say, person in the practice that brings business into the practice, there's nothing left. So with professional practices, it normally reduces it to where the only value is whatever your customers owe you in the form of accounts receivable and what cash you have in the bank and furniture and stuff you have laying around the office. So it can be pretty bad. Yeah, and I think that can be a real surprise to people who were expecting to see a big valuation on a business. Um, that actually, when you take when you take the person out of it, it just the the value goes down tremendously. Um, what other issues do you come across when you're valuing a business, a closely held business? One of the biggest things uh, we have to dig into is what expenses are running through the business. I think for political purpose, we, we call it discretionary, <laughs> maybe not personal. Uh, but most small business people have the business pay a lot of bills that other folks might have to pay out of their pocket telephone bills, country club dues, uh, cars, uh, salaries to children, all kinds of things. And it can add up to a lot of money. So we spend a lot of time trying to identify what are the discretionary things. If an, another person came in to run the business, they wouldn't have to pay. And we add that back into the income. So that can actually increase the value overall of the business. Yes. Um, and it is important, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with small business owners being able to, you know, for the most part, pay a lot of those discretionary expenses that's allowed. Absolutely. Uh, there's not, nothing shady with that, but it just is kind of knowing and understanding how that gets factored in then to the value. Yes, that and what would it cost to replace the spouse that's in it uh, for the services they're providing? Most small business owners either greatly overcompensate themselves or greatly undercompensate themselves and rarely pay themselves what you'd have to go out in the market and hire a non-owner to replace them. So we do, we try to determine what the going salaries are for similar jobs uh, to determine uh, that particular line item on their expenses. I know one thing that a lot of um, business owners or, you know, maybe they're a shareholder in a business that's owned by other members, they're not the sole business owner, uh, are worried about is how invasive a business valuation process can be on the operations of their business. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that process looks like? Yeah, everybody's scared to death about that. Number one, you need to understand we are bound by our licenses to confidentiality. so. We come into your business, one, we really don't care because we've got a hundred other ones to do. We're not gonna remember your business a month from now, although you think we will. Uh, so don't worry about confidentiality. And really we do a lot of it off of financial statements, tax returns, uh, 
information they have as part of their normal accounting process is where we get most of our records and generally get it from the business's accountant. Uh, we will want to talk to the business owner a little bit, but not extensively, maybe an hour, you know, in some cases more, but um, it's not invasive at all. Other than knowing you kind of had to pull your skirts up financially and this person's going to go in and look at all your numbers. Right. And, and certainly if there's been shady stuff going on, that can make people really nervous <laughs> to have to have another uh, person coming in to look at all of that. Well, but, sometimes that happens. <laughs> sometimes. Um, and I'm sure you have lots of good stories to tell on that front. We won't delve yeah. into all of those. Uh, but at, another another time or any other words of wisdom for, you know, business owners or spouses who are who are married to business owners? Spouses married to business owners need to understand it's probably not worth anywhere close to what you think it's worth. Uh, just because your spouse makes a lot of money working at the business doesn't mean the business is worth a lot of money. It may be. Uh, if you have a McDonald's franchise that no one cares who the owner is, it may be, uh, but in most cases where they're heavily involved and they're the business, uh, the value tends to be a lot less than you expect. Got it. Um, and, you know, I think one thing also that's important for people to realize when it comes to that value is there are lots of different options for how interest can be bought out. So I know a lot of a lot of times business owners are fearful that it means they're going to have to sell the business or that they're going to you know have to dissolve the business. And you know, in your experience, is that true in most cases, or do businesses continue and survive after divorce? Rarely do you need to sell it. It's not in anybody's best interest to sell it. If somebody finds out the divorce is causing the sale, it's a fire sale, you're going to get a bargain. <laughs> so uh, it's best, and I don't know what percentage of divorces settle at mediation. Like 95%. 95%. <laughs> so rarely do we end up having to go to trial where a court might order it sold or something. It's best for the spouses to work it out on some kind of payment term, either take other assets in place of the business if you're fortunate enough to have them. In a lot of cases, we've got a business and we got a retirement plan and we have a house. And in that case, where there's not a lot of other assets, you just work out a plan to pay for it over time, uh, secure it, secure the payment with the business or some other asset. And I think it's important, especially for the non-operating spouse to understand you got to make it to where the other person can afford to pay you. If you make it too steep, they're going to default. Right. So you've got to make it affordable and the tax acts, tax cuts and jobs act took away our ability to use alimony to make it a tax deductible payment. In the old days, before that, uh, we could move it over pre-tax, and that made it very easy uh, for for people to pay for the business. Now we can't do that, so we kind of had to stretch it out a little longer as we settled those cases. So if we had a five, normally a five-year 
say, term to pay for it. It might be more like seven or eight years now because they got to pay tax on what they're paying over uh, to the other spouse. Right. And of course, there are, there are sometimes it makes sense to maybe get a line of credit or some kind of loan um, on the business that then there can be some tax deductions there or something. Well, a lot of times, depending on the financial capacity of the business, a lot of times we see a combination where they yeah. go to the bank and, and borrow a reasonable amount, get that up front, and then pay the other over time. Uh, you got to take into consideration both spouses are going to have needs. And what we see a lot of times is they can't afford to keep a house. They're usually in some big house they can't afford to keep. And we need to make sure everyone's in a house. So a lot of times we need to get enough cash up front for people to, to get it to get in somewhere to live and then pay out the rest. And obviously these are all really unique situations. Every scenario is different, but that's why it's really important to be working with somebody like yourself who can look at the situation and help come up with some feasible options that will you know be sustainable like you said you don't what you don't want to do is you know hamstring somebody that so they go into default and then the business fails and you know the source of the college education for your kids fails and you know nobody is able to reap the benefits everyone loses everyone and loses i guess one piece of advice i would give both sides of of this deal is look at the other side and how it impacts them and take that in consideration when you're working it out because if you don't it's not going to work yeah i think if we go in with that win-lose mentality um you know having having the business owner in the losing position isn't going to be a win for you in the long run everyone loses it's just a matter of keeping both losses down as much as possible yeah and yes um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, another situation where you're frequently called in by um, by divorce lawyers, and that's when we have significant separate property. Um, and of course, in a in a Texas divorce, everything is presumed to be community property at the time of divorce, except what you can prove by a high level of proof. We call it clear and convincing evidence that you owned before marriage or was gifted or inherited during the marriage. And in order to meet that level of proof, we have to have an expert who can uh, help us prove to the court that it is separate property. Let's talk a little bit about um, tracing and what you do when you're tracing assets. Yeah, tracing is where we spend a lot of time. And we see a lot of it now in, it's very frequent in second marriages. Uh, and then with the baby boomer, boomer generation inheriting a lot of money from the prior generation, we're seeing a lot of inheritance coming into play now as well. So what happens is if you owned it before marriage, uh, then you need to have all the records to show you owned it. Uh, my advice would be, if you're getting married, never throw away anything. <laughs> we need everything in case you get it, uh, you end up getting a divorce, because uh, we have to trace the money from either the time of marriage or the time they inherited it or, or received it by gift until the current date. And normally things change. You inherit 
AT&T stock and you sell it and you buy Apple stock and you sell it and you buy IBM stock, that's called a mutation. And we have to track all those all the way through. And if we have large gaps in the records, the courts will ignore what we do. So I, I, a couple things are coming to my mind. First of all, um, you know, we have the gray divorce is on the rise. So people who have been in long yes. marriages, they've been married, you know, 25, 30 plus years, and you're having to go back and, you know, try and collect the, those records. But also the fact that so many, I'm mean, like, I don't get statements anymore, right? It used to be the same as would come in the mail. And so people would have files filled with statements. Well, that's not the case anymore because everything's digital. So you just rely on your digital access to records, but they are only available for so long, usually about seven years, right? If you're lucky, if you're lucky, years. you get seven years. So people, if you, if you're coming into the marriage with assets, um, first of all, and you've been married a long time, go and scan all those paper files and make them digital. Yes. And then if you, uh, if you're, if you're just getting married now, make sure that you are downloading and saving. I mean, you can do it every year. Usually at least your records are available for a year and that you're saving all those records. Yeah. I would save them. I would put them on paper because you don't know if a PDF will be readable in 20 years <laughs> if you end up getting divorced. Um, yeah, you've got to have it. Um, there was a case, I want to say last year, where there was a pretty good gap in the records. And a friend of mine did the tracing and tried to explain the gap, but there is a lot of increase in value during the gap. And the court, the appellate court, uh, who ruled on this said, nope, that wasn't good enough. You didn't explain it. Uh, you couldn't explain it because there was a gap in the records. It's all community property. And sadly, I mean, somebody lost a bunch of separate property yeah. because of the gap in the records. So it's very important to have the records. Um, sad for the person who lost it, but well, a, a windfall for the person who. <laughs> yes, that's who true. Gained from that. Not everybody was sad. <laughs> um, and so if we were to get kind of reverse engineer that if you're you're getting married today or you're getting an inheritance today um from this day forward keep your records and consider holding your assets in an entity like a limited partnership or an llc where all you have to do is prove you own the entity at the time you got married and you don't have to trace all the assets from that point forward if the entity owns them. I won't get into all the details of why, right. but well, it's, and, it's and, a very common practice to hold your investment assets in entities. Right, but you have to be careful with the entity because you end up in a partnership and you could have distributions and like things could get all muddled. So make sure you get good legal advice when you're doing that. Don't use LegalZoom to do it. Don't, that's, that right there, my <laughs> friends, is, is the gold nugget in this. Don't use LegalZoom. Don't use LegalZoom. Um, you know, a lot of people come into marriage. I think it's not unusual to not be completely trusting of your spouse if you're getting a divorce. Um, and so they come into the divorce process with a lot of suspicion. And so oftentimes you'll be hired to kind of do a forensic evaluation of um, the the money in and out and, and see what, when we talk about forensics, what does that mean? 
forensic accounting. It's a big, you know, I was, it's a big scary word. And I was, uh, in court one day in a, in a bankruptcy court and the judge decided he would define it for everybody. And he says, for the benefit of the court. So I'm like, well, that makes sense. It's for the benefit of the court. So it needs to be looked at objectively, uh, so that everyone involved knows the facts. So I look at it more as determining the facts for the benefit of the court. So you're not really, even though you're hired by one side or the other side in, in the forensic capacity, you're really there to aid the court. I, I'm there to aid you, but if it goes to the court, I'm as independent as I can get. And I tell people all the time, I will not lie for you. Here's what the facts are. If you don't want them coming out, don't put me on the witness stand. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's good to know. Um, so when you're doing, when you're, when, when somebody comes in and they're concerned that the spouse has been hiding assets, what, how do you begin and what's your approach in dealing with that situation? Well, we try to look at the, I mean, uh, generally we start looking at the big picture and working down, you know, what, what kind of business do these people have? Where does their money come from? Where does their money go? How is it managed? Uh, what kind of accounts have they got? That kind of stuff. And most of the time what we find is they're not really hiding assets, but they're blowing money on stuff the other spouse didn't know about. And a lot of times it's gambling is a big one. Paramours, girlfriends, boyfriends is a big one. <laughs> Um, n not as much bad investments as maybe there was at one point, but we see a lot of gambling for some reason. I, I don't get it, but we see it and we see a lot of money spent, you know, on, on others. And I, both of those build distrust and we usually don't find the money hidden. We usually find it wasted. It's a really good point. You know, I'm thinking of the of gambling. I mean, it's so easy now with the online access to you know these online gambling. So it 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 is very prevalent these days. What about um, cryptocurrency or digital currencies? Are you seeing people uh, investing in that and maybe trying to hide hide money that way? Well, I'm certain that they are, and but I'm not seeing it because most people that are doing that are pretty smart and know how to keep the digital footprint away. Uh, if someone's operating in cash, you're not going to be able to trace it. And if they tell you, someone tells you they can trace cash, uh, I highly doubt it. Um, so if someone's buying cryptocurrency with cash, you're not going to find it. Um, People are buying more of it. I think it's something we're going to see more of. Uh, one thing we've started doing is asking for Venmo accounts, PayPal accounts, where people are trying to hide money in those areas. But again, there's a digital footprint of that. And all you got to do is get the account and you see the money in there. Right. Right. And I think, um, I mean, I think most of the time what we see is that there i mean there is that digital footprint so people may think that they're outsmarting the system but um but they're not but of course there are those who who can and do and you know one of the things that um 
that I've seen happen is that it can be very, very expensive to go in and have all of the financial records evaluated. Very, very expensive. And normally it's not worth it. So you just need to keep in mind that cost benefit analysis, we are limited um, by what we can find. And you know, what you're saying is that there are times we just can't, you know, we can't find the cash transactions. So if somebody's heavily dealing in cash, then, you know, we're gonna be very limited. And that's just the reality of the situation. It's reality. And, and a lot of businesses deal in cash. Um, and a lot of different kind, of, it's not just bars and restaurants. A lot of different businesses do. And now if the spouse knows that there's a safe deposit box somewhere that there's a hundred or $200,000 in all the time, then they need to let their lawyer know. Uh, but, and that happens every now and then, but if they're dealing in cash, it's hard to catch them. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you before we wrap up today, I want to ask you one more question. What hope do you have for people who are going through the divorce process? I hope for them to get through it with as little emotional distress as possible and get on the other side and get on with their life. Uh, that's the reason I like working on them because you're helping people through a difficult time and it's nice to see them complete it and get happiness on the other side. That's where the real healing takes place is on the other side. That's right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and to give us a little insight into the world of forensic accounting and the work that you do to help people. To learn more about Robert Bales and his company, we'll, we'll provide links down below. And so we hope you will uh, check out his resources that are available on his website and tune in next time. Thank you.